Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania and its people. This week, Charles Bloxon discusses his book, African Americans in Pennsylvania. Charles Bloxon, author of African Americans in Pennsylvania, Above Ground and Underground. When did you first get interested in history? I started many years ago, right about when I was 10 years old, perhaps in grade school, when a teacher primarily asked me, did we, did we have a history? Negroes, as we were called, in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And I asked her what are the heroes beside Harry Tubman, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, Marion Anderson. She said Negroes were born to serve white people. And she wasn't a vicious person. She was a victim of her, of her environment. From After she made that remark, I went to Salvation Armies and Goodwill stores, and I started to collect books that said Negro, colored, as we were called also, African-American, Africa, Caribbean, whatever. So I began to collect books from the, buy books from the Salvation Army, Goodwill stores. And later, when I started traveling in high school, I was an athlete at Penn State. I went to bookstores wherever I played. We played football or on the track team. So over the years, I started to build up a collection. Today, it's the Charles L. Bloxon collection, which I donated in, in 1984 at Temple University. We have over uh, 300,000 items from the mere fact of the remarks that my teachers made it developed into a large collection. So that's where primarily where my history started. And being a native of Pennsylvania, I was always fascinated with Pennsylvania history. This, <coughs> this was in Norristown? Norristown. What year? Well, it was, it was back in um, the 1940s when I was in grade school. Did you ever go back and talk to that teacher afterwards? Well, later she sort of uh, apologized. She said she didn't know. This is what she was taught. And most of the history books in those days, they, had one or two sentences or a paragraph for, for black people or colored people on slavery that all slaves were happy on the plantation. They never explained why slaves ran away in the Underground Railroad. They never explained slave revolt. They never explained our inventors, our scientists, our military people. But luckily, uh, my family, my, my grandfather, my father read books and so forth. My grandfather uh, told me about our connection with the Underground Railroad. So things start to tie together. And over the years, uh, my collecting and researching led me to uh, write books. You know, I've been to 67 counties in Pennsylvania several times. My first book, Pennsylvania's Black History, came out in 1975 during the era of the bicentennial. I often wonder, even when I was up at Penn State, where, why are black people living in Belfort? I mean, there was one or two. Why did they live in uh, Lewistown? Uh, who are the black settlements? Uh, down in Chambersburg, up in Montrose, Susquehanna County. Where did these people come from? Uh, the curiosity led me also to collecting. Then I would ride along books, right along roads, the roadways uh, throughout Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia area, Montgomery County, where I live, and other places, and up in uh, Mercer County, up in Elks, whatever. I would see historical state markers, Pennsylvania historical state markers, and very few of those markers had any identification with people of African descent or African-American. So many years later, I was involved 
and uh, being connected with a marker in Cuttahawken, Cuttahawken, Montgomery County, for Edward Ned Hector, the Black Revolutionary War soldier who was born there in Cuttahawken. He grew up, lived there, and he participated in the Battle of Brandywine along with Lafayette. Uh, he saved the day, remaining on the field, recovering ammunition. When the order was given to retreat, he said, the enemy shall not have my wagon. So here was a person five miles away from my hometown, Lawrencetown, Cuttahawken, I never knew about. I never knew about Valley Forge, uh, the participation of African-American soldiers. I've been to Valley Forge a thousand times, uh, seven miles from Lawrencetown, even as a Boy Scout, uh, for the Boy Scout Jamboree in uh, February, the old days, we would march from Norristown along the Schuylkill River to Valley Forge to camp out. And we said, why are we here? There's nothing here for African-American, all the other monuments. Lo and behold, I never knew that eventually, about five years ago, I would be instrumental in helping to establish a monument in honor of the black patriot of the American Revolutionary War. So when people of all races go to Valley Forge today, they will see this huge monument over nine feet tall that pays honor to the black Revolutionary War soldiers. There were over 5,000 black Revolutionary War soldiers, and I never knew that. But the fact is, uh, these are the things that I've tried to put in the book. There's other, many more. How did this book come about? Well, the book came about from a combination of things. Uh, my life as a collector, my life as a writing, and um, what I've written before. I wanted to put the book together to commemorate the African-American and their white allies. It's not all about African-Americans. It's about whites who contribute, women, men, and children. I want to also include the Underground Railroad. That's very close to my heart. So it's become a combination of above ground, African-American above ground and underground, where I just start with African-Americans who first arrived here in Pennsylvania in 16, late 1630s, 1638-39, among the Dutch, the Swedes, the Finns, and the English. I talk about William Penn, although he's the founder of our state, our commonwealth, Many people in the past, teachers, children, and lay people, never knew, although William Penn was a Quaker, that he owned slaves. He founded the Peaceful Kingdom, and towards the end of his life, he wanted to free his slaves. So I include Pennsbury, where his home was in Bucks County, and so forth. I talk about a woman in Philadelphia who came early here. Her parents were born in the Barbados. Um, this amazing woman by the name of Alice, they call her Alice of Dung's Ferry. D-U-N-K-X, Dunksbury, Bucks County. This amazing woman remembered Christ Church when it was a log cabin. She would ride from Bucks County, where she was a toll cake taker, uh, on a Sunday morning on horseback at the age of 96, 16 miles. And she remembered William Penn. She lit the, pi the pipe of William Penn. This amazing woman died at the age of 116 years old. She was an oral historian of her day. So these are some of the things I talk about. I talk about the contribution of African-American, um, for instance, the Liberty Bell. We know how sacred the Liberty Bell is, but no one really know about the influence of the abolitionists who sort of named the Liberty Bell. They had a lot to say. There was a pamphlet, a series of pamphlets. It was called the Liberty Bell or the Friends of Freedom. They had such writers as Elizabeth uh, Browning from England, uh, John Greenish Whittier, the poet, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass and others, they said that old bell that hangs in the State House, Independence Hall was called the State House in those days, that old bell should proclaim liberty throughout the land, talking about freedom for 
Africans and Americans and so forth. That, that woman you talked about who died at age 116, what was her name again? Alice. How did you find out about her? They call her Alice of Dung's Ferry. She was, she was born in Philadelphia. Her parents were born in Barbados. She was born in Philadelphia in 1886. So therefore, she's one of the early slaves who came over here. And therefore, uh, later, she was purchased by a, a owner in Dung's Ferry, Bucks County. And as I stated earlier, she would arrive every morning as she grew older for 16 miles from Dung's Ferry in Bucks County to her beloved Christ Church, which was a log cabin at the time. Now, Christ Church, as you re recall in history, is the, the Christ Church is in Philadelphia. It's now? Christ Church where George Washington had a pew, Tom, uh, where uh, Bessie Ross was attended, and also that Benjamin Franklin is buried in a in a graveyard. So it's a historical church. But this woman, who was an oral historian, as I said, uh, remember William Penn lit his pipe and told the history of early Philadelphia when the Native Americans was in Philadelphia and so forth. She died at the age of 116. She's buried in Bristol, Bucks County. How did you find out about her? Through my research, collecting. Uh, matter of fact, I included a picture of her in my first book in 1975, and she's a fantastic woman. I always try to give credit to women. Women, who have more or less in history, has been left out of history. I mean, we know about the men and all that, but women made a tremendous, or I should say, a profound contribution to Pennsylvania history and other history. But she was, as, as I said, she's one of my favorites. You also refer to an Anthony, who you think might have been the first African in Pennsylvania. Anthony, 1639. Was it? Anthony uh, came over with the uh, with the Swedes. Uh, he was a, a slave. He was a slave among the Swedes. As you know, the Swedes owned slaves at first when Delaware was a part of Pennsylvania. But the part of Philadelphia near the uh, airport is called Tenencum. At the time, it was part. Delaware and Pennsylvania, then it's, now it's Pennsylvania. He was, uh, he was the slave under the Governor Prince, the Swedish uh, governor at the time, and he was his, his servant. And uh, Anthony was recorded to have been among the first African-American. Some people called him Anthony the Moor, because a lot of the terms in those days refer to the Moor, the dark Moors of Europe, the Moor. So we know him as Anthony. Is is uh, if someone wants to read about him, uh, where would they go? Primarily where I went, I went to research in the, uh, the archives at Old Swede Church, you know, and uh, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and the Historical Society of Delaware. As I stated earlier, Delaware was a part of Pennsylvania at one time, so that we share history as well as New Jersey, parts of New Jersey was a part of Pennsylvania. Now, if someone goes to, and visits the Charles Bloxham Collection at Temple University, what, what will they see there? Well. When I first started out as a child collecting, I collected the whole of our history. You know, I, I wanted to collect the, the information on Africa, the Caribbean, on South America. I should say the African diaspora. Wherever there pe were people of African descent, I collected. They will see a book written by Phyllis Wheatley, 1773, the first woman of African descent to publish a book. She was taken as a child between the age of 12 to 13, as historians say, and brought to America and sold to a Quaker um, merchant in Boston and him for his wife as a guest. And she was taught Latin and Greek, so forth. She sent a, one of her books, a poem, to George Washington. Many historians believe the poem, first in war, first in peace, and first in the heart of his countrymen, was from Phyllis Wheatley. So we, I also talk about Thomas Paine, 
the much maligned Thomas Paine, the son of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was for freedom. He came to this country to offer his aid with common sense, his famous pamphlet. But however, Thomas Paine introduced the poems of Phyllis Wheatley to the Philadelphia audience, and he was part of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, along with his good friend, Dr. Benjamin Russ, who believed in black rights. I talk about one of my favorite in history since I was a child, the uh, General Lafayette, or Marquise de Lafayette, who came from France to participate, to fight for our freedom. And uh, he was called the Boy General. He was, and he sort of considered George Washington as his adopted father. Lafayette also uh, had friendly relations with African Americans. Uh, Lafayette College, you go to Lafayette College in Easton, you will see an honor. There's many things named for Lafayette, but Lafayette had a favorite cook in Philadelphia by the name of Hannah Till. When he returned to America in 1824 and into 25, he visited her. And Lafayette said in a letter to George Washington, he said, my beloved general, he perhaps he had a plan to give African-American acres of land here in Pennsylvania. Later, Thaddeus Stevens in Lancaster said, give the Negroes 40 acres in a mule. So there's a great cry today of reparation among people of African descent. They had a big conference in South African Durham within the last year or so. It's, it's ironic. Two of the first people who called for reparation for African Americans came from two white men. John Lafayette, when he asked George Washington to give land, the, the, the plan never became a reality. And Thaddeus Stevens in Lancaster who said, give the Negroes 40 acres and a mule. So we, I tried to integrate American history. I took every historical spot in Philadelphia, from the Liberty Bell, Independence Hall, Rittenhouse Square, Washington Square, the Congo Square, to show that African Americans were there too. People come from all over the world to see the historical sites of Philadelphia in Independence Hall and such, but very few ever are aware of the contribution of African Americans. So I, I start with Benjamin Franklin, who, who owned slaves at one time, but later he uh, went, joined the Pennsylvania Abolition Society and became the president, and he, just before he died in 1789, he wrote a scathing attack against slavery. Most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were slaveholders. At the same time, there were many people, Quakers and others. Quakers are given the credit. Well, I was taught in the early history book that the Quakers didn't own the slaves, own any slaves. But now we know, as I said before, William Penn, many of the early Quakers owned slaves. I talk about Phoebe, Phoebe Francis, her father, um, Samuel Francis. They called him Black Sam, although he was a fair complexion man. Born in the, in the Caribbean, he operated the famous tavern still standing in New York City, Francis Tavern. Some people call him Francis, some people call him Francis. His daughter Phoebe saved the life of General George Washington. When George Washington and his other generals in New York, they would go to Samuel Francis Tavern to eat. One day, uh, an Irish spy, a double spy by the name of Thomas Hickey, who had a love affair with Phoebe Francis, Samuel Francis, African-American daughter, and, the, and she became angry. And the peas, a dish of peas that Thomas Hickey poisoned, she threw out the window. Outside the window were some chickens, and several of them started to peck the peas, and they died. Thomas Hickey, the Irish spy for the British, 
was hung before a great crowd. Now, I said, why isn't this information in our books, in this document? So these are the things I try to put in. I talk about Stephen Gerard, Gerard College, the largest, largest court case in Pennsylvania history where Gerard in his will said for poor white orphan boys of school. It's ironic that Gerard owned slaves in New Orleans, and it's ironic also that Gerard's brother's mistress, a black woman, Hannah, was his Gerard housekeeper. In his will, Gerard left money for Hannah for the rest of his life. It's, it's ironic today also that Gerard College is 90% African-American, admitting both male and female students. When did that change? When did the will get overturned? It, it, it started in 18, 18, 1938 under uh, the illustrious Philadelphia judge Raymond Pace Alexander, but it took uh, the fiery attorney Cecil Moore in the 60s to overturn it. They, matter of fact, Dr. Martin Luther King came to Philadelphia to march towards Gerard College to picket, to tear down the wheel, to tear down the wall of segregation. So the, most of the, as I said, most of the early historical personalities had African-American connection. Here in Harrisburg, I talk about Hercules, who saved the life of John Harris in Praxton, you know. Everywhere I went, you know, in the western part of the state, we talk about the role of African-American in the Pittsburgh area, which was called Allegheny County, in the southwestern part. Most, 99% of the counties, there's a connection, one way or the other, with the Underground Railroad, or I talk about, you know, um, the, the iron workers and the, and, and the industry, the iron industry, the laborers, the black laborers and such, whatever. Can we take a, a little trip around the state? And for people, you talked about people come from all over the world to see the historic sites in, in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh. If somebody wanted to see some of the sites you talked about in the book, could we just visit the different areas of the state and have you talk about a site that they should not miss if they're in that area? Well, usually when we do this, start in Philadelphia. But let's start in let's the start Northwest. In, let's start in Crawford County. Yeah. Uh, I'm on my way to Crawford County. Uh, let's start with the John Brown Tannery up in Meadsville, right outside of Meadsville, New Richmond. John Brown lived there in 1825. He, as you know, John Brown has been much maligned in history. You, people either love him or hate him. Most African-Americans always sort of were, was, they liked him because he, what he tried to do to liberate slaves. However, and many whites also considered him an honor. John Brown was born in, in uh, Torrington, Connecticut, moved to Pennsylvania, moved to Ohio. Everywhere that John Brown traveled, he was connected with the Underground Railroad. So up in Meadville, Ren Randolph, or the old name Randolph, now Richmond, Meadville, is the John Brown Tannery, where he ran a tannery, which was a part of the Underground Railroad. Still standing? Still standing. Last summer, a new museum opened right across this property. It's called the Historic, Historic John Brown Museum. So. Um, that's a very important. Also in Meadville, there's another state marker we placed there about 15 years ago in honor of Richard Henderson, an African-American underground railroad agent and station master, a former slave himself who escaped from Maryland with his sister and brother. His sister died along the Susquehanna River as she was young, and his, later his brother went up to, uh, up to uh, Crawford County, and he became a important agent on the Underground Railroad, a friend of John Brown. And now, where else do you want to go? You can go down to Pittsburgh. There's a lot of history in Pittsburgh with the uh, Charles Avery Institute. Charles Avery was a wealthy white philanthropist who 
build schools for African Americans in Pittsburgh. We could talk about Martin Delaney, the, the, the only black major in the Civil War, who was a doctor. He went to Harvard University, but he had to sit outside in the hallway. The student protested the, the fact that an African American was there at Harvard. And he went on to Africa, whatever. He was a major agent on the underground railroad. We Is there could a sight to see in Pittsburgh? There's a marker. Unfortunately, I'm glad you brought that up. Right? And traveling throughout the county, uh, these various counties, 67 counties, um, it was painful in many respects. Why? Because many of the sites referring to African-American history has been torn down, disappeared through urban renewal and so forth. Graveyards, Civil War graves, tombstones, whatever. So a lot of the homes and sites, whatever, is no longer getting back to Martin Delaney. We placed a marker at the site of his former home. I was also involved in Philadelphia with the largest Pennsylvania State African-American marker program in the country. It, we have the largest, we have over 65 markers. So I was, I have, was in charge of placing markers at the, uh, for instance, the Philadelphia Mu Museum of Art. How many people from all over the world come to Philadelphia? We know what Rocky did with Sylvester <laughs> Stallone, climbing the steps and all that, you know, but we don't know that an African-American, Julian Abel, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Architect, a black man, designed the Philadelphia Museum of Art. We placed a marker out there. He also designed the Philadelphia Free Library. He also designed the Widener Library at Harvard University and about four or five buildings at Duke University. These are important information for people of all races to know. So that's Philadelphia. Now we could talk about Perhaps if you'd give me a site, we talk about York. York is very important, not too far from Dolphin County, um, Cumberland County, this whole area here with Carlisle, York. There's been a lot of controversy recently of things that happened in York in 1960s during the so-called era of the, uh, of the black militancy. Uh, York always had a troubled relationship between whites and African Americans as early as 1803. Several black, or African as they were called, burnt the city of York. You have a picture of that in your book. I have a picture in the book, yes. So over the years, then we have in York, William Goodrich, who built the largest building in York. An African-American was a major agent on the Underground Railroad. He hid uh, several of John Brown men after the, the attack on Harper's Ferry with Osborne Anderson, who was thought Osborne Anderson, African-American, escaped, and he made his way to Europe, York, then later he went up to Canada again. So York was a very important area for the Underground Railroad and whatever. Um, where else can we go? We can go up to Erie, Pennsylvania. Erie, Pennsylvania has history during the War of 1812 where African-American sailors participated with, with um, Commander Oliver Perry in the Battle of Erie as gunners, whatever. We could talk about Harry T. Burley. Who was Harry T. Burley? Burley. Harry T. Burley was one of the greatest composers in, uh, in, um, during the last part of this century, of the uh, 20th century, and so forth. He wrote many songs. So, what, what might people recognize that he wrote? Well, he was an arranger. He wrote a, arranged a lot of songs for uh, Marian Anderson, our beloved Marian Anderson, and Paul Robeson and such. You know, we have we talk about songwriters. Um, not to go back to Philadelphia again, but we'll take James A. Bland. We we all are familiar with his music. We should be at one time. 
one of the Mummers Parade is a historical tradition in Philadelphia. But every year, even today, people sashay or walk down Broad Street to the tune of what? All Those Golden Slippers, written by James A. Bland. He also wrote the theme song for the state of Virginia, which is what? Carry Me Back to Old Virginia. So, I just looked up Harry Burley as you're talking, and he is uh, noted for uh, Deep River and Were You There? Where and you also, yes. um, Oh Lord, What a Morning. Oh Lord, What a Morning. These are some of the songs he arranged. Talking about another outstanding person we should know about from Blair County, Hollidaysburg in Blair County, Dr. Daniel Hale Williams. Very important for history of African-American history and history in general. This amazing man performed the first open heart surgery when he removed a, 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 a blade, a knife blade from a, 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 a person who was in a street fight in Chicago. When was that? In the 1880s. So, successful? So, successful. So these are the things that most people, you know, they're around us, they're there. We need to hunt them and record them and so that people of all races can learn about history. But, You've said that the most important history is local history. Yes. Why do you think that? Well, in my traveling around the state, uh, I had the opportunity years ago, 1982 and 83, and uh, the article came out in 84, the cover story of the National Geographic magazine, where I wrote the cover story of the Underground Railroad. And just going throughout the country into the deep south, into the Florida, that those slaves who were who were protected by the Seminole Indians, Seminole, uh, Seminoles, and then went to the deep south into the Midwest, all the mid all through Canada, up to Nova Scotia, and came down and stood over the grave of Harriet Tubman up at uh, Auburn, New York. You know, and I realized at that moment, a lot of history, the best history, is local. People in the past knew their history, and you have to be very careful when you go into towns and communities and talk. You never know who's in the audience, so you have to be prepared. Another thing historians in the past uh, sort of confused history, distorted history. Myself, I always loved history, no matter how old, ancient history, whatever it is. I cannot see how people cannot like history. But people said, well, it was so dry. History is our lives. And I said, the way it was taught in the past, they might say, a historian might say, that person did this, that person, or that slave. That person, or that slave, or that, that white or black, was a person. Give them a name. And therefore, it becomes alive again. You know, people say oral history. We can't rely on, on oral history. With the underground rare and most of our history, we weren't there. Everything cannot be documented as far as a print or a book or whatever, a picture. But most of us, even my own family, oral history was a very important. Oftentimes, I found in interviewing people of all races, of many subjects throughout the years, that a person could be 80 years old, 90 years old, tell you verbatim what happened 90 years ago, 80 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, and cannot tell you what happened yesterday. So we have to, there's a hard kernel of truth in oral history. So a lot of material that I got over the years was oral history that I had to document. For instance, in my own family background, speaking of the other subjects in the book, the Underground Railroad, my interest also started at the same time about when my teacher said the Negroes were 
made to serve white people. My grandfather was singing a song, singing a song, a spiritual, in the, my backyard, my father's backyard, my hometown of Norristown, Pennsylvania. Uh, one Sunday afternoon, he was singing a spiritual, there's a highway to heaven, walking up the king's highway. I said, Grandpa, what are you singing about? He said, I'm singing about the Underground Railroad. He said, my father, James Bloxon, and your great-grandfather escaped from Seaford, Delaware in 1856 and made his way to Canada, and several years later, several of his cousins in all the state. And sure enough, later on, I was able to purchase a book written by a black man who was in the book, William Still, who was a black agent. His own mother was an escaped slave in New Jersey, and he was the, uh, the youngest of 18 children. He came to Philadelphia, worked for the anti-slavery office, and recorded, worked his way up, recorded where slaves came from. So one day, Jacob Bloxon and three other slaves escaped from Seaford, Delaware, came to his office in 1858, and he told the story. And he said once he got to Canada, Jacob told him that he would write William Steele to alert his wife Leah and his young son Alexander where he was. They went to Canada West. In those days, Canada West was St. Catherine, Canada. And sure enough, in his letter, he said, I saw Jim Bloxon in Canada, the same Jim Bloxon, my great-grandfather, his cousin, that my grandfather was singing the song about. The Underground Railroad with spirituals and such. The Underground Railroad was a clandestine organization. People of all races and, and creeds seemed to have an interest in this. I was lucky again, after writing the National Geographic article in the Underground Railroad in Pennsylvania in 1981, and I had the good fortune to be selected by Congress, the United States Congress, to uh, serve as chairperson of the National Park Underground Railroad. There's a great interest in the Underground Railroad today. I'm bombarded from all over, from the BBC and children, people from California, all over, with the current interest in the Underground Railroad. But it all started here in this great state of Pennsylvania. Our state is so important because it set the tone. In 1990, Representative Peter Cosmar of Bucks County came to me. He said, Charles, I read your National Geographic article, and I also read the uh, your Underground Railroad Pennsylvania. He said, I'm a part of the Department of Interior. If you think that these sites should be preserved, he said, let me know. And I said, by all means. So I compiled a list of 25 sites throughout the country that I thought would be, was important. So he took it back to Congress, and Congress appointed our committee, advisory committee, where I was appointed chairperson, to record the history. At first, the National Park Service did not want to do it, but our committee became their boss for a so-called for a while we were there. So, as a result of that, there's a current interest in the Underground Railroad, and this state, primary from the idea of Peter K. Cosmo, it's important to give credit where it started. We know now there's a museum being erected or planned for it in Cincinnati. I was called to go down there in 1992 at the same time that I was on the chairperson of the Park Service, you know, to, they asked me, is it possible for us to build a museum? About the Underground, about the Railroad. underground Railroad. There again, it's not about me, it's our committee, and this state, you know, a lot of historians, uh, writers, newspaper people and others do not want to give the origin. It's always important to start with the beginning. Give people credit, give people credit who paved their, gave their lives, who were thrown in jail, who died on the Underground Railroad. People of all races, the Mennonites, 
some of the Moravian, the Bethlehem, the Mennonites, Lancaster in this area, and in a white, black, in a men, women, and children, the Underground Railroad started long before the 1830s and 40s, when it's generally is conceived to have started. As soon as our ancestors, African Americans, set foot on this continent, or in Pennsylvania, they, they planned to escape. Look at some of the early slave advertisements in the early papers, newspapers, ran away from Dauphin County, from Cumberland County, from Lancaster County, from Burke, Philadelphia County, Bucks, Montgomery, early slave advertisement. Oftentimes, those slave advertisements would give the trade of a woman, whether it was a cook, a seamstress, a, a, a goldsmith, or whatever. So this day, yes, there were slaves here in Pennsylvania, going back to the early Swedes and Dutch and so forth. The early books, textbooks, did not mention that there were slaves in the North. The South was maligned. Most of us were taught that all the slavery occurred in the South. How long were there slaves in Pennsylvania? Since the beginning. Almost, uh, until almost when? Since, almost since the beginning, until 1865 after the Civil War. I mean, during the time of the, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, so-called. There were slaves in Pennsylvania as late as the so, 1860s? So, some of them, yes. Served as, well, the General Law of Pennsylvania, the Graduate Act of the uh, 1780. But however, some people were hidden in remote areas and they still served as slaves. Uh, but it was more or less, we should say, the Civil War. Now, speaking after the Civil War, now speaking of the Civil War, we, t we hear about Gettysburg. There again, like Valley Fort, I've been to Gettysburg many times, but I always thought cold. I said, what am I, what am I, why am I here? There's nothing here for our, for, to represent our race, but lo and behold, there were African-Americans, not as soldiers because this government, government didn't per permit African-Americans. African-Americans volunteered in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia to come here, but they were turned back. Governor Andrew Curtin, formerly of Belfont, at first refused them. And later, however, a group of African-Americans from the Harrisburg area and others saved the bridge at Columbia in the Lancaster County. Uh, they uh, sort of thwarted the efforts of the Confederate soldier under Lee and all as they came in. So they were there. There were African-American women and men on the battlefield of Gettysburg as nurses, cooks, aides in camp, even the Confederate had people worked in the laundry and such. So what I tried to do in the book, you will see that there's African-American, for instance, one woman by the name of Maggie Palm, an enormous African-American woman, former slave, worked as part of the Underground Railroad. During the Battle of Gettysburg, they called her Maggie Bluecoat. Why? This woman wore an elaborate blue coat, blue coat of a veteran of the War of 1812. That was her, one of her trademarks. She kept it over those years. But she rendered tremendous services on the Battle of Gettysburg. So I would try to more or less include that when we go to Gettysburg, African-American and others go, as children, school kids, as lay people, as tourists, say, yes, we were there. Just like we were there with the Revolutionary War at, at Valley Forge and Brandywine, we were there. You know, it's, it's harmful not to tell the truth for children. I try to present the book, giving people credit of all races. The hand that holds the quill, pen or pencil, controls the history. The hand that holds the quill, pen or pencil control history. So 
So what, I, what am, I, am I saying to you? Whoever is writing history can write whatever they want. Perhaps one way, I want this book to represent, represent diversity, that people of all races and creeds and colors. It was my goal, like the efforts of the Underground Railroad, which I call the first great civil rights movement in this country, where people of all races came together. My goal with this book is that people of all races, creeds, and colors can read it and walk together upon this American earth in sisterhood and brotherhood. That's all there, there is. It's, we only live for the word. We only live for knowledge. When we pass on, the knowledge is still there. We must preserve the history of our ancestors, whether they're Mennonites, Amish, Moorish, Christians, Jews, atheists, whatever. There are people who paved the way for us, and we should honor those people. This is what I try to do. Of course, no one could ever tell the complete story of, of, of history because we weren't there. So much has been, so much has disappeared. I ask you about something. You wrote a book in uh, 1975 called Black Genealogy, and genealogy has gotten pretty popular in recent years. Uh, do you have suggestions for people who might be interested in their family history and how to start out, either in black genealogy or, or genealogy. anybody's family history? Genealogy is in, in the, uh, when my late friend Alex Haley wrote Roots in 1977, at the same year my book came out, Black Genealogy. I started my own trace of genealogy about four or five years before Alex did his book. Nevertheless, I found it's important. No matter what color, I'm not talking about color or race or whatever, it's important to interview the oldest member of the family or someone who connected with the oldest member. You know, sometimes people won't talk. Sometimes you have to bribe them, with the, promise them a cake for their birthday or take a out or whatever. You know, do not take a, a uh, tape recorder and put it in front of, front of some of the senior citizens' mouth, mouth and say talk, but no. The oldest member. Another thing we fail to do, of all races, black, white, or whatever, is to sit down. We watch football games. I mean, I was an athlete. I love sports. I love entertainment. I love all the other two. But sit down. Every time I have a photograph taken of my daughter, of, of people I know, people I meet at the collection or whatever, I write down who they are, not in ink, but a pencil or whatever. What happened? How many times that we, within our own families, we have paintings and pictures on the wall or whatever. We don't know who, they, we're not going to live forever. So it's important, it's important, first of all, to interview the oldest senior member. Secondly, is to record who you are. And then most of us, I mean, in the old days, people, I was lucky because our family Bible survived. So some people won't be able to do it. Now, some people will never be able to trace their genealogy because of the adoption records or whatever. You know, but what they should do is select a person who had a, a profound effect on them, who raised them or whatever. But there's other ways. I mean, there's a hundred ways, even with slavery, uh, less than 150 years ago, almost uh, my ancestors were still the slaves, a little over 150 years ago. So it hasn't been that long. And with African-American, because of the distribution, the disruption, the disruption of families, a lot has been lost. But in spite of the puzzle, there are still elements. I was lucky. I could trace my genealogy back to a certain distance because our family, the white blocks and B-L-O-X-O-M is the original spelling. In our family Bible, other people, white, black, whatever, will find that names change. Sometimes they change names. Sometimes people who came over 
during the turn of uh, mid-1880s, all from Europe, uh, middle uh, Europe or wherever, sometimes the census takers changed the names because they couldn't spell the name or give a name. It's hard in that respect. Uh, however, in my case, the family moved from Accomack County, where they, where they were first enslaved. Uh, one of the owners, white owners from England, the name goes back to England, blocks and back, I think they trace it back to the 11th century, whatever it is. But however, when it came to our part, the enslaved Africans, the one master slave owner took the enslaved Africans, who was my ancestor from Accomack County, Virginia, up to date, it would be Route 13 into Seaford, Delaware, you know, where they were enslaved. So my ancestors were there for years. And then even during when I wrote the National Geographic magazine, I mentioned in the book too, of a white woman, a tall, heavyset, but attractive white woman, woman by the name of Patty Cannon. And the Cannon name in, in Delaware is just as, as important as the DuPonts. They were governors, slaveholders, whatever. So Patty Cannon, during the era of the Underground Railroad, a little before it really started, 1829 and so forth, she started her Underground Railroad in reverse. She had a gang of kidnappers, the cutthroats, who would travel as far from, she built her home on Dorchester County, Maryland, Caroline County, Maryland, and Sussex County, D Delaware. So when the law enforcer would come to one part of her tavern home, she would go into another room and she would be in another state. So they kidnapped innocent men, women, and children, African-American men and children. She had a, what they call a boat, her slave boat, on the, uh, on the uh, Delaware River outside of Camden, and they would load them up. She had African-American spies and cutthroats. Now, not all African-Americans were loyal to their race. Some turned their people in. So she had a few African-American who would go and kidnap people as far from Philadelphia, as far as uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and around, and around Delaware, take them back down to the area of Delaware and Maryland, where she was, oftentimes murdering them, whatever. Then others she would send down to the Deep South, New Orleans and Mississippi, to be sold in the cotton plantation, the rice plantation. This vicious, violent woman who could wrestle the average man to the ground was captured and placed in the Georgetown, Delaware jail. People came from all around expecting to see her hanging. The night before her hanging was her own foul hand. This evil woman took poison and she died in agony, pulling her hair out. Document, my ancestor lived in the same area of Seaford, Delaware, not too far from Patty Cannon. When I interviewed, speaking of oral history and genealogy, when I interviewed my great aunt, Minerva Bloxon, back in 19, 82, she was 105 years old. She lived to be 109. Her memory was clear as yesterday. I said, Aunt Minerva, did you ever hear of Patty Cannon? Even at this age, her face became contorted in a sense. She remembered, she said, when, us, when I was a youngster, the old, the old folks used to tell us if we didn't behave as children, if we didn't behave, they was gonna get Patty Cannon. She remembered Patty Cannon all these years. I mean, the, the, the tale of Patty Cannon. Of course, she wasn't born at that time, but she remembered. So Patty Cannon, even today, if you go to the Historical Society of Delaware in Wilmington, you will see information, documentation on Patty Cannon or Georgetown. So you, this is a part of genealogy. It's a part of history. It's part of the Underground Railroad, whatever. So if you start with oral histories, 
what do you do then? You, you put it together, you start placing together, you, you, you try to document as much as possible. Let me tell you and the audience that you cannot document everything. I mean, as much as clear as possible. No history is accurate or pure because we wasn't there. We could speculate, whatever, so forth. But you put it together and therefore you give it to your relatives, save it for your relatives, your descendants, and whatever. Sometimes give it to the local, talk about local again, the local historical societies. You know, make sure the information is documented. And I, when I traveled around the country, I tried to encourage school teachers to have their children do their genealogy, whether you come from the Middle East, whether you come from the, uh, the Orient, here, or whatever. You, you also wrote this book um, uh, called Damn Rare, and it's uh, reflections of a African-American bibliophile. Don't let the word damn uh, excite you, because damn, in this case, refers to a person, a bookseller or a collector, who wa once or twice in his or her lifetime will come upon a, a rare item, a rare book, a rare pamphlet, and the term among book collectors and booksellers is damn, is damn rare. So it's a book of primarily, it's two books within one. It's, it's a book about my life, plus my life as a bibliophile. What's a bibliophile? You're a bibliophile. You love books. I love books. The average person loves books. So we're bibliophiles. What made you write this book? This is about you, basically your autobiography? Well, over the years, people said, you, you know, with your, your unique you know, background, you, you know, you walked away from a pro football career, you know, the New York Giants, you know, you walked, you, walked, you walked away from that, you know, of that Penn State, and my teammates, and of course, roommates were, uh, were Lenny Moore and Rosie Greer and so forth. They said, well, you know, I was on the track team. They said, why did you not follow that pursuit? I guess at the time, I always loved knowledge. In a way, looking back on it, this is the best question, the honest, the honest answer I can give you. Yes, I, I enjoyed, I was honored to receive all the awards and medals and trophies and all that, but my greatest reward, Brian, is to look upon the title page of a book that I've written to see my name on that book, then all my athletics background. Not that I don't appreciate my athletic background, because I would never have gone to college without my scholarships. But the fact is, you know, the mere fact that I've written, well, 10, 11 books now and other articles and so forth, it's hard for me to believe, it's hard for me to sit here and recall the time that I flunked English composition twice at Penn State before I passed it now. And I, so you never know where life is going to take you. So the book primarily is about my life, uh, my ordinary life, and my life as a bibliophile. I talk about other books and so forth. I do have to ask you about your football career. You played football at Penn State, yeah. you said, and uh, you were in New York Giants training camp. Yeah. And Vince Lombardi was an assistant coach at the time. What was that experience like? And, and what, what was it that made you decide that wasn't for well, you? Well, it was up at Winooski Park, Vermont, where he had the training camp up there. I mean, Rosie Gray was on the Giants team. Rosie didn't, uh, um, he, was, he was coming in the following week, but. Uh, largely through the effort of Rosie Greer, my roommate, and then my other great roommate, my high school rival and my teammate at Penn State, from Reading, Pennsylvania, Lenny Moore, you know, is that at that time, I don't know what came upon me. And I said, well, I wanted to do something more in life. In those days, people are making a fortune playing sports nowadays. 
But something came to me and said, this is not for you anymore. And I was always the type of person, I can't fake it. You know, if I don't like you or whatever, I like to do something, I won't fake it. If I can't get my all, I won't do it. Just like collecting books. People used to say, what are you collecting those old books for? Even African-American or colored people or Negroes at the time we were called, what are you collecting those old books for? You know, suppose I had to listen to those people. You know, I always followed that light, that inner light of my soul. You know, collecting books and all that is a lonely pursuit. But it's, a, it's also, and it's, uh, I call it my agony and ecstasy. It's agony when you want something, you didn't have the money to pay for it, or you just missed a book. You know, I like to go to antiquarian bookstores, get on my knees, look through the shelves, and so forth, to search, to hunt, what I, what I enjoy. The ecstasy is when you find books. The ecstasy, when people come from all over the world to the collection, white, black, Gentile, Jew, Orient, whatever, and you were able to give them the knowledge that they're searching for. I mean, to me, it's, that knowledge is in, internal. Athletes' lives are short, you know, for, for accident, whatever. But the, the knowledge of the book is it's internal. What did you do for a living after you left the Giants then? Well, I went to the service for a while, you know, I was overseas and I came back and then I started a janitorial business. And then I, I was called, my, my school district, Norristown, asked me to come to help them at um, the school district. They were going through some problem with the integration of schools, although we always had integrated schools in Norristown. But from the early grades, from K to six, they, you know, it was um, within the core of the town. So therefore, I also uh, uh, introduced African-American history. I served for human relations. I, I, I did a lot with the community as far as uh, taking new teachers, new uh, employers, I should say, throughout the town on their first day of the job to acquaint them with the history of the town. This is you know, something that's been beneficial. Some other school district adopted new employers because oftentimes people come into town. Today, our teachers, when I grew up, they lived in the town. I never had a black teacher in my life in high school or college, you know, and had some good teachers. But most of the teachers in those days lived in the town. They knew your family, knew everyone. But today, people live on the outside and such. They, they come to work and they go home. But in order to learn the town, local history, it's, it's best to learn about what's going on within the town. Now, you are now the curator of the, the collection at Temple University that's named after you. Yes. Um, do you, are you still adding to it? Always. If uh, do you have a couple of prized possessions? That's a loaded question. Right? It's like I know you being, being a book person yourself. How can you sit there and ask me uh, my prized possession? But I'm asked that question a thousand times. What are your favorite books? Did you read all those books and pamphlets and such and such? You know, I have a sort of a photographic mind with books over the years. Because people come from newspaper people from Philadelphia, the television people, media people, and all. I mean, everybody calls from all over. The BBC would call. Uh, however, my favorite book, I cannot answer that because they all mean something to me. Whether I have books in the collection I can't even read. Like they're, they're written in Yiddish, in French, in German, in Harik, and so forth. But they're about African history, African-American history. You know, I have children books. For instance, Little Black Sambo. People say, what do you have Little Black Sambo in the book for? That's the book I detest. We as African people, we, are, we as colored and Negroes in our schools because our schools never had that many African-American in the class. There was always one or two or three of us in Norristown as we grew up and so forth. But it was the integrated community. 
thank God I grew up in an integrated community. My street that I grew up in in Norristown had Swedes, has Greeks, Irish, Polish people, Jews, the Gentiles, Italian. So we had with the neighbor of, of uh, hood of three blocks of Lafayette Street, they for Lafayette. We we mingled together. Yes, there was prejudice and so forth. But little black Sambo. Whenever the teacher would ask one of us little colored kids or Negroes, how do you want to read or read a, 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 a lie from little black Sambo? We would try to slide under the floor because in those days. Black meant negative. Even today, in some areas, black hand, black cat, everything white was white, pure. The black cowboys wore, bad cowboys wore black hats. We were programmed. We were programmed at an early age with segregation to hate, not a, the lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. We're all one people. The fact that that little black sambo was about, written by, written by an English woman, woman by the name of Helen Bannerman. She wrote the story primarily. She had two little girls who she placed, her and her husband placed in a private school, a boarding school in, in, um, in England or Scotland at the time, while her husband had to serve duty in India. So she, they left her two kids in order to amuse herself and also to amuse her daughter, her daughters, she wrote the story of Little Black Sambo, not associated with an African black, a little Indian boy, because in some parts of India, in the Orient, some of the Indian so-called are dark-skinned people. So the key to the whole story, we used to hate the story. The key to the whole story is what? The tiger. There's no tigers in Africa. The simple, the simple as that, the mere fact that it wasn't about African-American, but in the, when the book became, came to America, they made the little character, Sambo, to represent black people with sort of curly, so-called kinky, as they call it, and thick lips and so forth. So stereotypical information from the beginning. And these are things that we are programmed with all the way through from an early age. You know, we all, as African-American, as the great scholar W. Du Bois said, he's in the book, we wake up with a double consciousness every day because we live in one world, have to work in the other world, and so forth. We only have a couple of minutes left. And I want to. One thing I learned about your book is that um, Martin Luther King graduated from Crozier Theological Seminary in, in Chester. Chester. Yes. How widely known is that? Well, people who really are Dr. Martin Luther King scholars, they sort of know about it. But uh, there's two historical state markers there, and it's the same, not too far from where the, there's the Ethel Waters Park. Ethel Waters was a great singer and actress, and so forth. She's from Chester, so not too far. When you go to Chester. You could go to see the Closure uh, Theological Seminary where Dr. King studied or to Ethel Water Park, Park there. So, uh, yes, he was there for quite a while. Is there something you, you are particularly looking for for your collection? When you go out, do you have some kind of a checklist of, of targets or do you just look? Well, there's one book that's been haunt, haunting me for years, like the book of Phyllis Wheat, her poems. You know, I couldn't afford her many years. I mean, I had a love affair with her until I was able to get her and hold her, her book, poem. But a book is called Lay Sennell, C-E-N-E-L-L, Lay Sennell, which is an anthology written in 1845 by a group of, of African scholars, people, I should say, poets of New Orleans, the Creoles. That's another segment of our race. They published their first anthology 
about people of African descent, by people of African descent, 1845. And that's one book, a little pamphlet that I'd like to have. Well, maybe someone watching has a copy of it. Perhaps. Turn you on to it. Uh, you're writing another book now? I don't know. It's like I, 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 I'm taking a break. Last year I, I wrote another book. It's called Philadelphia 1639 to 2000. It's published by Arcadia Publishers. And at the same time, I was working on this book the last three years. I think I'm sort of finished now, but I don't know. I, I don't know where life is going to take me. We've talked about a lot of books today, but this is the main one we've been talking about, African Americans in Pennsylvania, Above Ground and Underground, published by RB Books. Charles Bloxon, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.